All right, Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. And let me give a quick background. Um, you know, as I've mentioned before, you know, sometimes this letter is avoided, and I encourage you not to avoid it, but to read it with the key, read it in context. Realize that John's speaking of a time when he's right there, a time he is entering into in the sense of the present right there. You know, the angel appears to him, Jesus appears to him, and then there's gonna be another time that's referred to, and it's after these times. It begins in chapter four, verse one, it's after these things, which is what? The things of the church. So we're reading about the things of the church right now. And as we wrap up chapter three and enter into chapter four, we're gonna enter into a different element or a different aspect of this particular book. But right now, we're reading about the church. We're reading about these seven churches, and it speaks of the complete church. And when we read this, I would like you to consider this view or these ways of application. Um, it's multifold. For one, you would see the geographical church. You're given a, a city name like Thyatira or Ephesus or Smyrna or Sardis or you know the, the city names for these churches. And so there was a church meeting there. And there's certain things we can learn about those churches at that time that give us an insight into how the Holy Spirit may very well show application to you and me, as we've done in Ephesus, and as I mentioned, the others, Smyrna, and, and even um, Pergamos last Sunday. So we'll be looking at Thyatira tonight. So there's a geographical church, you want to view that. You can see it also the historical church. I haven't put a strong or much of an emphasis on there. Um, I believe you can study that one on your own. I think it's important. It shows us that all seven, par, or all, all seven churches and the things brought out are actually evident in each age, but some ages of, of church history, beginning um, at the resurrection, I could say, and then carrying through to the, this age or fulfilling in the, uh, the rapture of the church, in each one of those ages, there's been specific things, like the persecuted church, and now we're going to be in what's referred to as the corrupt church in the publisher's subheading of your bi many Bibles. And so there's elements, that, seasons that were really corrupt when, you know, church systems become the emphasis, when the word of God is held from people and retained for only someone who speaks Latin or whatever they want to do with the emphasis on, then that, it was really a, a very dark time, but it was very corrupt too because it was given over to compromise the culture, joining in with culture. So there's his, the geographic church, the church through history, the historical church, the present church, I believe that's to, be have, to have a, a, a locale or locality or local application. I believe this should be applied even to our church. We should be able to receive and hear. And then there's that person in the church, which is your, you as a person. You know, there's times that I have lived my life very active, very engaged, very busy in the church. But I would fit in the category of Ephesus, more loveless, more busy, but leaving my first love, allowing those, that busyness to be some expression rather than actually, you know, the balance of what God teaches us. So that's what we have. Each of these seven churches are instructed to listen to what God has to say. The, the wording is, frequent, is used in each church. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So he's basically saying, now listen. So verse 18 of chapter 2, Revelation, the church of Thyatira. Let's read through the end of the chapter. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, 
love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Verse 20, nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you, I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. As I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Moving back to verse 18, let's go over a few things that will fit in the, the, the historical time, in the, in the geographical sense, I mean, uh, for the church there in Thyatira. Thyatira was known for their their bright color uh, fabric, their cloth, the, the, the fabric trade. Um, let me go, you can turn with me if you'd like to, to Acts chapter 16. I always like to look in Scripture and get a glimpse of cities that are mentioned. And in Acts 16, we know as Paul is, uh, you know, just seeking out where God would lead him, he had a sense to, to go one place, and then he, he had this, like, vision, so he knows he's going to go now to Macedonia. And in Acts 16... We see him charting that, verse 11. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. There was a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. So here we have Lydia. Now this is many years earlier than what we have in the Revelation record. We read towards the front side of the book of Acts, there in Acts 16, chronologically speaking. It's probable that Lydia was a help in bringing the gospel to Thyatira. We can glean from what we just read. She was a seller of purple. We know that took place in Thyatira. She has a place there in Philippi, so she's got enough money to have two places, two houses. She tells her maybe a different retail outlet, so to speak, there in Philippi as well. But you can be sure that just by what you've seen, a glimpse of her character and her prayer, when she got back home to Thyatira, she's living the same way and probably sharing that. So just an interesting thought, of course, to consider. Um, scholars, historians recognize the history 
of the, the trade guilds, the unions as we would probably call them now, um, or associations as some are called. But those were, these ones were pretty tight. And they, they, they formed and practiced in this small town, which is like 40 miles east of Pergamos. It's the modern-day um, uh, Akasar of Turkey, in the city in Turkey. So in comparison to the cities we've already looked at, or the churches that were addressed, Thyatira was a small town compared to uh, Pergamos and Ephesus. But Thyatira was influential and in that it was a part of that trade route into the Roman Empire. And so as I've mentioned, Lydia, you know, she, she was a seller of this, this popular expensive purple fabric that this city was known for. What's interesting is I found this in a couple of sources the historians point out that these trade guilds, the unions, I'll connect it here for our culture in a minute, and kind of a convention, they had their conventions in Thyatira. And so you had to participate in these events to be in good standing with what I call the purple people. Because you, you, know, you kind of, when you're in this thing, it's like everybody's kind of like, hey, we're going to have this. I, I liken it to what happens so much in Las Vegas. Because what happens in Las Vegas is these, these conventions, your, your point of commerce or whatever your thing is, they just gather, hey, we gotta go to, we're going to Vegas, and this is what it's all about. And, you know, these event participants, and even members in the guild, were expected, that they, it wasn't just considered optional, they were expected to participate in the partying, the sexual morality, uh, the idol worship, which was the focal point of their culture, Therefore, it's the focal point of the conventions. It might have been the start of what we heard. We, we have repeated. I'm just speculating. No, no source to support this. But what happens in Thyatira stays in Thyatira. Could be. I would suggest what happens in Thyatira stays on your permanent record. That's what I would say differently than what others might say. But we know that you know in our culture, there's this pressure. And actually, I see it even by vocation and occupation. Or when you go somewhere or you connect with someone or you represent a company, you're expected to do what the customers do, whether it's drink or you know, whatever you're supposed to go participate in. We got time, I'll share real quick. Kim's heard this story, so don't be shocked. So I was working in the truck shop and uh, this, uh, we, we, we were sent to um, Denver to a place called Bandamir Raceway. So it's a drag race, um, just a drag strip outside of Denver. It's like a, the best of the best of the best type of thing. John Force was there, it tells you how long ago. Anyway, so we're, we're supposed to go to this, but you have a couple nights while you're there. And the rep, my, our personal rep for the retail store, who the DuPont's foot in the bill, but anyway, he knew it'd be good for everybody. We gotta go out and do something. So, you know, I, he knows where I stand. I already told him straight up. Say, me and this other guy, we're good. We can stay in our hotel room. We're good. We're just, uh, we're just boring old Idaho people. We're good. He's like, oh, okay, yeah, but I really kind of like everybody together. It's like, that's yeah, we're good. Because I knew kind of where he was leaning. When we get to downtown, we're dropped off, and we go walking into this place for dinner, and they have a cover charge. Not a lot of restaurants do that, you know, <laughs> generally speaking. It's like, I looked at him, and I'm like, and so as we go in, well, it was a strip club. And I'm like, I looked at him, and I'm like, you punk. And I just, you know, me and the other guy, we just tolerated our time, 
made it reasonably uncomfortable for everyone else at the table. Um, and we all left as a group because I couldn't leave by myself. But see, it, to, to the person who actually lost our business over that venture, because I, ch- I switched to a different supplier right after that, but the person who did that, he actually thought he didn't see anything wrong with it. He actually couldn't figure out why I was so wound up or you know, why I couldn't accept that because that I wasn't doing anything, in his mind, anything wrong. And the other guy was actually engaged to be married. Now, how are you going to explain that to your fiancé? Ah, how was the business trip? Yeah, it was good. Really. You wouldn't say anything, probably. Most young men wouldn't because why deal with that wrath? You just wouldn't say anything. Instead, some clown at the wedding party would mention it and she'd find out the day you get married and then things are just going peachy really good, right? You see my point? I mean, it's like, that's what was happening there. That's what happens now. That's why we gotta approach this this study of the word with an awareness. There's nothing new under the sun. This area was known for starting those those guilds and unions and that type of thing. And, And so basically, partying on the boss's dime mentality. And so we see as, we're gonna, as we go into this that this is the, the, the corrupt church with the compromising that's common in every area of the ch- era of the church. We also see there's an opportunity for corruption to settle in and weaken the church. In the culture, it's just what it is. But when it comes into the church, that's where we see the problem. That's why we're concerned about it, because it does come in. Jesus is ad- addressing the corrupt church. Notice in verse 18, as he gives a description of himself, a, a, a declaration, um, he uses a little different declaration of himself, because he's saying there in verse 18, these things say the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Each one of these churches, he's used the different description of himself, and I believe, to a large degree, it's relevant or related to what he's going to address within that particular gathering. Well, what we see here is he's, he's presenting himself as the, the image declares to the Thyatira church authority and judgment. Uh, frequently, Jesus would identify himself as um, the Son of Man. This, when he says that, and you see it through the Gospels, the Son of Man invites relationship, it, connection, association, a sense of approachability, so to speak. But here he declares himself as Son of God, which shows distinction between him and man. See, Jesus you know, when he presented himself as the son of man, it's because he's approaching them. And, he, and he's, he's, as it says in Isaiah, you come now and reason, let us reason together, you and I, in engaging. But he also made it clear to us, even his followers, but he wasn't just one of the guys and a good teacher. He was God incarnate. And this is a very clear declaration. Son of God shows this distinction. Think of it, eyes of fire and feet of brass. They speak of truth and judgment and authority. I like to think of it this way. His eyes of truth see right through our paper explanations and our cardboard compromises. So you think about that eyes of fire and you got to build up your little, you know, here it is, your little paper protection, your little explanation house, and it's like, it's just torched. Now you're open and bare right before him to speak to what was true. So that's how he presents himself. But notice in verse 19, I know 
I've stopped each time we've got to this, as we've went through this book, and I've stopped that because we, we don't want to overlook the beautiful simplicity and the repetition. Repetition has a purpose. It's not for redundancy, it's for retention. And so we realize, okay, so he said that once before. Uh, after last week's study, somebody had asked me, why did he mention this? And then he says it again. It was a brilliant insight. It was a great observation. It's like, hey, he's saying this again about himself on the beginning and the end, and he's saying this. I know, I know. I want to ask you, do you believe he knows? Because truthfully, when we believe he knows, it changes what we do. It really does. All of a sudden, our explanations and excuses and whatever we have subconscious that's not shared publicly starts falling apart. Because it's like, you're trying to sell ice cubes to Eskimos. You know what I mean? It's just that he's not buying it. There's just no way he's buying into this because you know he knows. And so, man, what a joy to be able to say, I know he knows. And I know he's merciful and kind. And I know he desires what's best for me. And I know his correction is what I need. And so, Lord, I would, I usually, this is my prayer. Lord, give me the courage to stand up and acknowledge that you know before you have to sit me down and correct me. I would rather have it done his way than to be, you know, the, the other way, put it that way. So he says, I know, and look at this list. Your works, your love, your service, your faith, your patience. He's basically, you know, acknowledging that there, there, there was a, this was a good group of zealous Christians. There was a good group gathering here in Thyatira. They had good disciplines. They were loving they served God by serving others. The text teaches us they were faithful. Um, they held up under pressure. Basically, when he says, I know your patience, the, the, the Greek word there is speaking of, I, I know how you carried yourself in adversity. The, the root of the word is when a, a woman would go down to a creekside to get water and fill it up with flowing water, you know, fresh water, and that she'd put the buckets on each end of a pole and then carry the pole back up to wherever she was going to be. And so that's the word that speaks of that carrying that load back up the hill. And so I know you guys have endured in hard times. You didn't just serve when it was simple. You didn't just you know, connect when it was easy for you. That's what he's, he's commending them. You know, he goes on to say you know, that they were growing and expanding and extending to others. He, he says, you, know, you started good and you kept doing good. It wasn't about works, it was about love. It was about they, they, they were getting it. They were realizing you know, their role within community, within culture, their role ultimately within the church. In verse 20, nevertheless, and he says that to each group, and I, I do know that he, he identifies those things that are, that are doing well to get them some support, get them kind of a sense of, okay, because he's going to say, now, now I don't want you to forget what I just said, because I'm going to go over some things that are going to be harder for you to accept and receive. So you, you understand as he's saying these things, he's, he's, he's affirming them and encouraging them. And as he's correcting, he's actually supporting them even more, even though correction never seems great. It says in Hebrews that discipline, chastening, never seems great in the moment. It's later that we realize, man, I really needed that. And so, nevertheless... He's saying you, you do good things, you, you know, you're loving, you're helpful, you're supportive, you're reliable, you attend prayer meetings, you support missions, but you still fall into sin. We see here it says, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, 
notice this, who calls herself a prophetess, and you allow her to teach and seduce my servants, and here's what was one of the things that was happening, to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Corruption doesn't care who it conquers. Immorality takes down young and old, powerful and weak, popular and the castaway. It doesn't care. It's no, it, it is no respecter of person. Matter of fact, those things tend to show up more. They're, 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 they, I don't know if they show up more, but they're maybe a, a stronger attack the more a person occupies position, the more a person you know, maybe even grows in their calling. And what we have to be aware of is it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, and it's speaking of uh, those we've learned of in the history, you know, specifically the Israelites. He says, you know, learn from their example. Be careful where you stand, lest you fall. See, it, that, that is, a, is a carryover, what I'd say, an application, a, a warning to us. Listen, you know, don't think that it won't happen to you. You don't have to be, you know, real on the news. You don't have to be real savvy about different functions and things happening in different places around the world. But it doesn't take long before you hear that somebody who once has a Christian leader, teacher, um, whatever position, they were doing well. They were doing great. They were good teachers. They were this. And you, you would see all this stuff. And they felt immorality. They caved to carnality. And yet they're still capable of teaching well. They're still, but guess what? Their witness was a washout. Because even though they're doing good, this, this corruption has crept in. This compromised a culture. This saying's okay and putting themselves in a place and exceptions. And next thing you know, we see horrible and terrible things take place. Well, sometimes the church is okay with that. And that's what he's talking about. Sometimes the church says, well, you know, those things happen. That's a difficult thing. That's a tough deal. Look at what he refers to in in Jezebel. Um, Jezebel, from Scripture, is just a really bad name. (laughs) Not because it sounds somewhat one way or another. Just the, the, the scriptural record of this snake in the grass. Because she, she really was a very wicked person. You'll find the, the details in First and Second Kings, and they give us a rundown on this, this wicked woman. But basically, when Jesus is saying that you allow this, this, as we'll call Jezebelism here in a minute, he's referencing, referencing a Gentile woman that King uh, Arab, I think Ahab, what, what's up? Oh, somebody mentioned a name. I could, okay. Anyway, this king of the northern kingdom took his wife, took as wife in defiance of God's commands. This king says, I, I don't care, I'm going to do it this way because it's politically correct, it's culturally acceptable, it's worthy of promotion, it'll knit us together better. And guess what happens? Well, he does it in defiance of God, and then this queen that he brings in, brings, she brings in Baal worship, temple prostitution, and compromise. And compromise is what, it, what functionally what you can see it as, is this, you find a way to sell your stupid and people buy it, really, because it's, they know not to do it. It's already been written, but when you present it at this angle and this little bit of a deception and this little bit of a tilt, well, you know, it, it doesn't seem so bad the way you, now you mention it that way. And it's not because people are seeking for truth. It's the, even a regenerate soul, a born-again Christian, there's times they're looking for carnal 
appetites to be satiated, to be satisfied. And so they find ways to say it's okay. And it's a form of corruption. It's present in the church today where it's just like, okay, well, it's okay really if we just do it this way. It's okay. You know, I've, I've met men and women who know the word of God. For example, they, they got maybe saved in a, youth, in a youth age, maybe through youth group or whatever, and, and they, they, they told the line, they're on track, and they're doing okay. And, and they meet, and then they start this thing called dating. And then they get, get to know each other and experience each other, and, and then there's this thought of exploring one another. But they know it's not, you don't do that. No, no, that, no you don't do that. But what does a piece of paper matter? We're going to be married eventually anyway, so what's the difference? It's all going to work out in the end, so therefore it must be okay to not do it God's way. Well, you know, it's not so much that we're overlooking God's way, but financially it just seems smarter to do it this way because we're going to have to pay for two places or we're going to have to do this. And just, you can imagine some of the things that go through our minds or in people's minds in, in point of temptation. And we, we, they, this, we see... Find a way to, to compromise and say it's okay. Because I know some other, I know this one family, they did it. This one couple, they did it. They've been married a long time. It didn't really hurt them. You see what I'm saying? It's just all, what is it? It's a way of scheming and getting around from the specific direction of God. And when we get out of, from under his direction, we end up going all different directions. It's really not a good thing to have happening. So what was Baal? Well, this Baal worship was terrible because it's another form of idolatry. She built altars to Baal alongside the altars to Jehovah. And that's what she brought in. And nobody stood up to it. There was, there, there, there's not much of any record of opposition at the time all this was taking place. Jezebel represents false doctrine, false authority, and false practices. Notice she presented herself as a prophetess. In order to sell the corruption, you've got to have some sales pitch. You've got to have some angle to why people will set down what they know to be true and entertain something that will hurt them. So there's got to be something there. So she, she uses, typical of a lot of people, a title. She presents something that's thought through and persuasive. She claims to have authority. She brings these false practices. We know the false practices are to get servants, God's servants, to commit sexual morality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Sacrificed to idols is an interesting thing. You can look it up in 1 Corinthians where the meat in that day you know, would be given in these various different um, idolatrous religions. The meat would be offered up to the God. And as it's offered up to the God, it was then taken from there, and the priests, or however their practice was, kept some of it, and the rest of it was taken into the marketplace and sold. And so if you go in into the marketplace, the way you knew it was the best stuff, it was tagged as from a temple, so to speak, because all the practices, all the different religions even, they, they, when you were part of their discipline or right was to offer the um, meat, then, then you had to give the best of the best. You didn't get just get the you know nearly dead lamb and give that one and keep the good one, so to speak. So what happened was all the good stuff had a special tag, so to speak. And so you knew that was the best stuff, but you also knew it was given to idols. And so then it's like, well, maybe it's really a lot better for the barbecue if we could get this. Oh, no, I can't do it. And so the word, it basically instructs us. And when you don't know, then you do it of clear conscience. In other words, you go to someone's house, 
They've got meat there. You're doing a barbecue. They say nothing. You're really simply instructed, have a good meal. But if they got meat there and they say, hey, this is, the, this is the discount rack off the good stuff. This was offered to idols. Then a Christian in that culture was to say, I'll pass. Because it was a test to them as a witness to others. Does that make sense? If you could say, no, I'm not, I don't, if, you, if they wouldn't have said and made a big deal about it, they wouldn't be testing you. But they were testing you. And therefore you're like, you know, I'm good. Well, that was one of the areas that many people were, were kind of like tempted. It's like, okay, maybe, and there was, it was taught, it was okay. We, like I say, you read in 1 Corinthians the, how it was addressed. Jezebelism can be described as something that starts as cultural compromise and ends with disobedience to the word. It starts as cultural compromise and ends with disobedience to the word and it's all done in the name of the Lord. And it's all done in the name of the Lord. Did you know historically some terrible things have been done in the name of the Lord? People have been murdered and been, I can't even get into the list. In the name of the Lord. The Lord led me. The Lord spoke to me. And all this different stuff. Well, I feel the Lord is wanting us to. And that's what the root of Jezebelism is. Moral decay, immorality, cultural compromise, trying to fit in when you should shine through. That makes sense? When we start trying to fit in too much, when we should just shine through it and not dive into it. And that's really kind of what we see. So he says, you know, some of you, you know, have done that. And I, I like what it says. Um, it says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman in other words, not everyone was a part of it. We'll see that reaffirmed here in a little bit. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Some just will not repent. For some people, they won't repent. Repent is to, when, you're, when you realize, when truth is brought to you, and you realize what you're doing is wrong, there's a regret, like, oh man, I shouldn't be doing it that way. Repentance is like, man, I regret doing it that way. I'm turning to do it the way God is showing me what the word says. I'm going to do it that way. Some will not turn. Literally, that's what he's saying here. You know, I, I give her time, but you know, some will not repent. She's, she's giving them, giving you time to repent. But they did not. It's a, it's a scary thought. Can we agree? That you could push past the opportunity to repent. And you can. You can actually do that. You can defy God so many times and so many times, and I don't know where the end is, nor do you. That's the scary part about it. It parallels with when someone says, you know, I'm not really into the Jesus thing right now. I'm young. I want to have some fun. But when I get old like you, then I'll be open to this, you know, this discussion. You, you can actually not get that discussion again. You do not know when you, the day you'll depart, when you'll pass, nor do I. And so we're told here, you know, that they would not, I gave them the opportunity and she did not repent. Verse 22, indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Pastor Chuck puts emphasis on, um, you know, they actually could not be raptured. Uh, he doesn't have the, he doesn't, in the book, he doesn't elaborate into why that would be. It would be because they don't have salvation in the first place. They never repented unto salvation. He did not come into a true relationship with God. And so when I looked at this like, man, you know, 
there's things happen and, and sometimes we wonder, is it punishment? Did God punish them because of this action or this activity or this attitude? Like, I can't tell you that. But I think they could tell you I didn't repent. I did not repent. And there are consequences to our actions. Is that not true? You can resist, you can rebel, you can go in and you can make life really miserable for yourself. Beyond the normal misery, you can multiply the misery by choosing to make things miserable. And what happens when people do that many times? They blame the one who made them instead of the one who deceived them. Rarely does somebody, man, devil just stinks, man, I guys hate him. No, 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 no. Where do people say that? What do we hear frequently, sadly? I don't, God, why is God doing this to me? Uh, I don't know, I didn't know you acknowledged him. You see, it's like, wait, wait, wait a minute. It, 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 you can push it past, the, 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 you can go way too far. I like what we see in verse 22 and 23 in that he's merciful, patient, and perfectly just. In other words, he didn't ignore it. He, he's merciful and he gives opportunities. And he finishes off there. He said, I will, I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am him. I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. He who searches the minds and the hearts. He knows the thought and the intents of our hearts. He knows our pride, our rebellion. He knows who turns from the world to him. He knows it all. And so because he knows that, we then see this as differently than like, oh, wait, man, that's, I don't, ooh, that's a terrible thing. It is. But just turn to him. Because that's the premise of the whole thing. They did not, would not repent. And as you're going to see when we get into Revelation, even when their body is so tormented by this tribulation period that their soul, their body, they'll want to depart the body, but it can't. It won't. It's what you could think of as the living dead. And it orients once again about they will not repent. They will not turn to him. I will give to each one of you according to your work. There is a reckoning. We are accountable for what we've done with God, what God has given us. We can do this. We can make it. 24, verse 24. Now I say to you and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine. That's what I was mentioning to you. You will see not everybody was participating in this Jezebelism. There were some that were bold and courageous and kind and loving and willing to address the issue and talk about it and deal with it. He says, you know, for those of you who have not known the depths of Satan, you haven't plunged into this pit like many have. You realize, no, I'm not going there. And because of that, he says, I will, lay, I will put on you no other burden, no greater weight. Not everybody was, you know, caught up in all this stuff. He's saying, I, will, I know who you are. I will not weigh you down. Jesus, you know, in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My burden is not wearisome or heavy. Verse 25, but hold fast what you have till I come. Speaking of keep your grip on what is important, endure. You're doing well, stay the course. He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I give power over the nations. I believe he's from here on he's going to be speaking in part to the millennial reign and rule. He has a place for his children to reign and rule with him at that time. Verse 27 is a quote from Psalm 2, a messianic reference, speaking of the Messiah. He shall rule them with the rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel. 
as I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Some questions about what the morning star is. Let me read to you in Revelation 22, verse 16, which speaks of Jesus. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. I believe it could at least be in reference to his coming to his calling the church up, to his leading them, this bright morning star at the end of darkness of night, that maybe even the age and era we live in, then this morning star. He says, I will, I will give him the morning star. Consider that as well. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. And I pray, Lord, we would just let these things permeate and soak that they would be truths that you will bring forth in your perfect way, in your perfect time. May we be teachable people. May we be humble before you. May we not think that someone else needs to hear this, but may we hear it from your very voice. May with our ears, spiritual ears that we hear with, may we choose to love, may we choose to obey. Thank you, Jesus, in your sweet name. Amen. Amen.